Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals. All thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. This is the Saturday Session with Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Kia ora everyone and welcome into the best of the sesh for the month of July. It's producer Ben Francis here and thanks for listening in to our monthly podcast special. Every month we collate all the best bits from the show into one easy podcast for you to enjoy and we have some cracking stuff to share with you from July. We have to start off though with our celebrations for our one year birthday. That's right, SENZ celebrated its first birthday in the month of July and I organised a special birthday present for Daniel and Grant. When they arrived in the studio on the Saturday, there was a mystery gift sitting on their desk and they had no idea what it was. While the boys were talking to the organiser of the New Zealand Chili Eating Contest, Clint Meyer, their present was revealed and I'm guessing you can figure out what happened next. Carolina Reaper. I think there's one in that little package I sent down, but I think I just heard Grant might be allergic to chili, so keep it away from us. What? <laughs> what? Well, is that yeah, what this package is? Oh, we've, we've got I a happy yeah, birthday. We, we, we had a package from Ben. Surprise, boy. Oh, just... oh, happy birthday, Grant Elliot. You get to have a Carolina Reaper chili. I was just winding oh, uh, Ben up God. in the in the break because I saw the word chili on it. Oh, my look word. That. It looks angry. Do, do all chilies look this angry, Clint? Because this is an angry-looking chili. Well, the one with the tail, that's the reaper, the little stinger on it, and then the other one's the ghost chili. But you can sort of see they've got little sort of spikes and lumps coming out of them, so you know they're the real right. deal hot stuff. I mean, yeah. Right, so, so the longer, the thinner of the two is the... The ghost chili or the butcher here. The, go- so that's the ghost chili, the okay. Uh, you know, around a million scovilles. The hottest in the world. So if I just take the little tip off here, Clint, if I just take nibble. a little nibble of that, yep. will that will that yeah. really hurt me for the rest of the show? Uh, depends how far you bite in, but it'll give you a good little good little taste of how hot they really are. Um, but you should still be able to Go talk. Up. I don't know. As long as you're, uh, you maybe got something you to drink c- around and you're not on an empty you- stomach or anything. <laughs> Do you, do you want to um, co-host a radio show in about five minutes? Got two hours to go. Are you going to give it a go? Do you want me to? Yeah, I'll give it a go. But Clint, I want to. I want to ask you though. Obviously, there's a lot of handstands um, in the shower after this competition. But what what is it that you have to do to um, gear up for the competition? What sort of training Mate, you do you know, need? You know, we've only got two minutes to go, and you're you're diverting. You're diverting. You're trying oh, to push this back off like a you're a politician. <laughs> okay, yeah. You take a bite, Grant. I'll time. press record. Here we go. That's the ghost chili. It's the ghost chili. Okay, go on, I'm going to take a bite of the ghost chili here. Yeah, he's taking it maybe a right. centimetre oh, or two. Word. Oh, my. Oh. <laughs> 
Uh, All the reactions uh, immediate. Look at his face. He's he's redder than the actual chili already. I've swallowed it, Clint. Oh, my word. That feels like a whole packet of... (laughs) whole packet of pepper. It's only just going to build too, mate. You're only... um, That'll be a lot in about another two minutes. (laughs) Oh, wow. Really? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Excuse me. Oh, dear. It's probably a good time to to stop recording. Um, But the other one, the Carolina Reaper... How much more severe is that one? Well, that's about one and a half million, and can peak at that two million mark. So, uh, (sighs) about one and a half million as well. So it's it's, yeah, it's probably another forty percent, fifty percent hotter, depending on how much you take and eat, sort of thing. That is is fantastic, Clint. Hey, thanks for joining us. Make sure you make sure you tune in after twelve o'clock when when Grant eats the Carolina. Clint, uh, I can't cow. thank you enough. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, mate. Well, that's quite bad. Training, they might give you a wild card for the final September 24th, mate. <laughs> wow, there's 160 of those. Good on, good on you, Clint. Yeah, uh, yeah. Good luck to everyone. Jace, the defending champion. i got to go. National Chili champ, uh, Championship. Grant has eaten I'm out. What would, it, what would that be, Grant? Maybe 5% of that chili? It's <sighs> a good bite, though. That is a, well, it's actually a good I'm bite. out. I'll be back. Sure you're going to be back? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. All right. I might be down a host. He is bright red. Looks like he's been on the booze for three weeks. <laughs> this is the Saturday session. I'm your host and your only host. It's, uh, it breaks my heart to say Grant Elliott has retired from broadcasting. I'll tell you what. That was intense. That was really, really intense. Mitchell Stark after... A tea break with a white ball or eating another chilli? Is he bowling 160? He's bowling 160. Mitchell Stark, any day. And really? he doesn't know where it's going either. Tell you what, that chilli, I, th- I took about a thumbnail. So I took a thumbnail. If you look at your thumbnail, I took a bite of that. Now, these chilli-eating competitors are having 120 of those. What, what was that chilli? 160 he had on 160, that one. the world record. Um, I don't know how you can do that. I can't even describe the intense sort of emotions that go through you and the, the taste in your mouth. You must have no senses in your head if you're good at that sport. Yeah, and your gut. And just, well, maybe you get used to it. Maybe you just get used to it. At least it isn't as gross as the, you know, the world hot dog eating challenge. <laughs> That's just the worst spectacle, isn't it? That's a proper sport. <laughs> Should we put that on our list of things to do? But the National Hot Dog Eating Championship, yeah. Grant versus McCarty, yeah. I'll be a sellout, mate. It will be an absolute <laughs> sellout. Uh, so big thanks to uh, Jason for joining us. No, it wasn't Jason. Uh, Jason's the, the champion. Chase, Jace is the defending champion, of course, Oof. at our National Chili Eating Competition, which is uh, going on in Christchurch today. Uh, it was great to have uh, Clint Meyer on the program from Fire Dragon Chilies in uh, north on the far north. He's been all over the circle for a number of years. He also sent us a little bottle of, uh, I guess, his own product, the Fire Dragon Chilies. Um, and it's uh, on the label, it says, Dragon's Fury, pure, insane chili sauce. Can we smell that? Let me just give it a yeah. little whiff. Yeah. I'm not going to taste it. You're tasting the other one, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I have to do the, the hottest chili in the world. Okay. But well, I, I, I'm a smart broadcaster who also always thinks of his, uh, his audience. I'm going to do it towards the end of the show because I don't think I'm coming back from it, Grant. I think, I think there's only one way for me, and it's it's straight to chili hell. 
Although well, the dragon's fury that I just took the lid off and had a little smell of. The paint's coming off the wall. <laughs> Notice in the corner there's a big... It's the dragon's nostril. Tell you what, singed my hairs as it went up there. Need to gather ourselves. Where are we? What are we doing? All right, here we go. Um, world's hottest chili. And Grant, of course, has to film it. Right. World's how, hottest chili. Here we go. It? Daniel McCarty. Right, I've bitten it. Oh, he has bitten it. It's just a little bit. I've got to have some more, don't I? Yeah, it's nothing. There's nothing happening. Or maybe it was just nothing dry. dry oh, oh, here we no. go. Here we go. Why did I have a second bite? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I'll describe. He's closing his eyes. He looks like he's in. He's actually he's gone down to the floor now. His hands are on his knees. <laughs> he can't speak. <laughs> I think. Do we have? Do we have any? Oh my g- anyone in uh, medical services here? He's breathing heavily. We might have to go to a break. Uh, ben Francis. Twelve minutes away from one o'clock. <laughs> this is SCNZ. <laughs> we will be back with our sporting tips of the week that you probably should run a mile from after this break. It just Eli keeps Jones. getting hotter, doesn't it, Daniel? They keep turning up the temperature, and oh. it's not fair. <laughs> it's hot enough. In fairness, um, Grant, how many bites of your chili did you have? I just had one. Yeah, how many of mine did I have? You had you seven. Seven. I had seven bites. I've eaten about a third of it. Yeah, yeah. Half of it. My, I'm get not going down that road. Not going it's down. It's making me. It's making me think weird things. You know what? I have to stand up and applaud Daniel and Grant there. Fantastic job, boys, down in those chilies. Very brave of you. I know that I couldn't have done it. And I also have to admit that was probably one of the most fun, enjoyable moments we've had in the one year of doing the Saturday session. You boys did well. If you did want to see videos of their attempts, though, you can view them on the Saturday session Twitter page. Moving on now, and the legend segment on the show is always a lot of fun. And we had some cracking guests, some cracking sporting legends on the show in the month of July. It's always great hearing their incredible stories on the field, off the field, whatever sport they did. Could be motorsport, could be rugby, could be cycling, anything. We get some great guests on, and they're always open and honest and insightful about things they did during their career. First up, let's hear from former All Blacks captain Stu Wilson, who shared some incredible stories from the back end of his playing career, including playing two games in two days and then still rocking up to his Monday to Friday job the next day. You know, when you look at what we've achieved in the All Black jersey, like the All Black legacy, the history, no wonder guys in America, you know, some of those famous um, gridiron uh, NRL coaches, you know, they, they win... They win four or five years in a row and they're, they're deemed heroes, yet they look over here and see an all-black team that has a history of over 100 years and still run at 89 to 90% success rate mm. after 120 years. They just can't believe that. And yet we in New Zealand tend to throw it out the door. And what every all-black should understand is that you have done something that no other sport in the world has done. No other sportsman has achieved this. You know, the Tiger Woods and the Serena Williams's They've all had 10 years and decade of brilliance and, and being the number one on the team in the world. The All Blacks have, it, have, it, have had done it for 120 years. And there should be a book about that. How do they create such a successful history year after year? You know, 
Last year, we looked pretty average on that tour to, to Europe. But, you know, that's just a, a little blip in the, in the ocean. You still look at the winning record of, of the All Blacks since day one to today. You're still hovering around that 89 to 90% success rate, which is absolutely colossal and phenomenal. You know, and really no is. one really looks at that. No. In your days, you'd have a test match and then you'd have a um, provincial game not long after. Uh, I think on a couple of occasions, yeah. might have even been the day after. You, you would do anything to get back to play for Wellington. You loved playing for Wellington. I, I think that's pretty obvious. But, Are you pissed off yeah. Bernie got a corner and you didn't? No? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I actually wrote letters. You know, we didn't have t- <laughs> computers in those days. I wrote a letter to the Wellington Rugby Union and said, could I have the Millard stand a little bit of sign up there? I'll, I'll, I'll pay for the sign and even get it erected. Stu's corner, Bernie's got one. Why can't I have one? I've scored more tries than he has. So how come he's getting all the credit, you know? I just can't believe well, it. Well, that know? tash, though, mate. That tash, you know? Yeah. That got an extra credit, didn't it? You couldn't grow one like that, could you? I don't. Look, I'll tell you, there's a lovely moment, guys. Uh, you know, in 81, when we won the third test against South Africa, and it was a great series, even though there was a, bit of, there was a lot of trouble off the field. You couldn't have written a better script for a three-test series. We won the first test. Mm. They won the second. We go to Eden Park and winner takes all. So we, 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 we got a win up there, and we had a big night. Uh, the following day, on the Sunday, um, Wellington played Manor 2 for the National Provincial Championship. It's quite the next day? <laughs> yeah. The oh. next day on the Sunday. Wow. So the four, four to five, well, the four to five men or two boys, um, they got a private plane and flew back to, to Palmerston, right? Frank Oliver, Doug Robertson, Jeff Oliver. Yeah. They were quite money. serious about this game. The four Wellingtonians who played against the, the Springboks on the Saturday, Mexted, Wilson, Fraser, and Houston, just had a quiet little night in Auckland <laughs> and woke up and thought, Right, let's catch a plane and let's go down to Wellington and we'll take Manawa 2 on at Athletic Park this afternoon at 2.30 and give it a crack. Well, when we walked in, we were running a bit late, the plane was late. We walked into the shed and this was a special moment for me and, and the boys because we were hungover, right? There's no doubt that because we'd had a good series win against the box. So at the top of the stairs, if you understand what happens in the dungeons of Wellington, you go down the stairs into the dressing room, into a, oh. into a cave. And Ian Upston, our coach, met us upstairs, and he each gave he gave us each of the four boys a packet of, of, of chewing gum, and he said, "For Christ's sake, you stink like a brewery. Get this in your mouth and go down. The boys are waiting for you." So he opened the door, and we were coming down the stairs into the room, and all the other guys in the Wellington team were changing, getting ready for the game, and they all stood and they clapped us. Oh. As we were coming down the stairs, they knew we were, they, all, they all knew we were a bit, bit, bit lazy and a bit hungover. But they had witnessed the day before, they'd watched it on the telly, and they'd seen us uh, keep New Zealand history books alive with a good win against the box. And they acknowledged it with a standing ovation. You know, special moment, small moment, not, not probably meant for a lot of people, but for the four of us, we thought, Jesus, we're not going to let these boys down today. We can't let them down. So we got into our Wellington jerseys 24 hours later after the string box, and we rolled out and we ran out onto Athletic Park and I looked up and the Millard stand was full. I thought, shit, there's 43,000 people here today. Mm-hmm. Crikey dicks. Half of Manawatu had come down. Wellington, because this was the provincial championship final. And we, we battled away again. Murray played outstanding. Booty scored a try. Huey kicked goals, and I played like a donkey. But we managed to win. Managed to win, 
and we won the provincial championship. But you see, the thing is that then we're in a group of guys from the capital who were then wanted to party on Sunday night because we had won the, we had won the champs. So out we went again. We did two in a row. And then I rolled into a company I was working for on the chair on Monday morning, a little bit slightly hangover with two huge big games of rugby, followed by two huge big parties, obviously, because one of them just went off that night. And I get up there, I'm going up in the cafeteria, and I'm standing beside Daphne, the payroll officer for Thomas Borthwicks and Sons. And I said, and who knows nothing about rugby, she turned and looked at me and said, hello, Stu. I said, hello, Daphne. She said, how was your weekend? <laughs> how was my weekend? There was a bit of blood just running down the side of my face. You know, I, I was unshaven. Oh, I had amazing. a few bruises. I stunk like a brewery. And I said, oh, not bad, but quite not bad. Deaf. Mowed the lawns on Saturday and just read the papers on Sunday. How was your weekend? <laughs> that is Two fabulous. big games. That is fabulous. And that's what, and Ma, and Ma Nonu came out to me one year later, many years later, and said, Stu, the story is that you boys played two games in a row, you know, like, you know, all black test match one day and then played for Wellington on the Sunday. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, gee, man, I can't even play two. I'm not even allowed to play two games of rugby for the All Blacks. Sometimes he plays so well, he gets rested. <laughs> and he just couldn't right. get his head around that. But I said, but that was the days of, of when I was playing now, not, not when you're playing now. It's just different. Two rugby games in two days? Yeah, nah, not for me. I'm sorry. Moving on to our next guest, and we had a motorsport guru, Bob McMurray, who spoke about his time working alongside some of the biggest names ever in Formula One. I don't know how to introduce this man, because in his career he has done everything, whether it's more recently being a highly respected motorsport commentator. Prior to that, of course, a huge, long, impressive involvement with McLaren in Formula One, where he did everything from driving the trucks to... You know, working on the cars, keeping us and the media at bay, wobbling with all the corporates. He could do everything, but uh, he's worked alongside some of the most uh, incredible names in all of Formula One especially, and we are utterly de- delighted to lift the lid, see what I did there, lift the hood on, on his career. We actually don't have enough time to cover every little detail of his career, and it has been that, that vast. It is uh, great to have Bob McMurray on the program. Bob, lovely to hear your voice again. How are you, sir? Daniel, I'm, I'm good, thank you, and thank you for that build-up. I'm not even sure who you're going to talk to until you've said my name, but it's good <laughs> to speak to you again. <laughs> we, we like to start this at the beginning. You, you and motorsport, where, where, where did the love start? Where was the romance kindled? Oh, uh, romance, yeah, that's, that's difficult to say. I suppose it was uh, motorcycling, really, motorcycle racing, Brands Hatch, that's where... We first used to go, my wife and I, before we were married, to see uh, the likes of Derek Minter and all sorts of people like that in the old days. And then we also used to share a house with my brother-in-law, um, or he was to be my brother-in-law, um, who, and we had itinerant Kiwis arrive from New Zealand mm. and stay with us before they got a job at McLaren's. And uh, one night I thought, yeah, well, let's go around there. My brother-in-law, who worked at McLaren, said, come around, um, see what you you think about it in 1967 and I met Bruce and um, Bruce McLaren and um, I don't know, they gave me a gearbox in bits and pieces on the floor and I put it back together again and that's kind of where it all started I suppose. <laughs> Romance wasn't it was dirty and greasy at the time which Formula 1 is not now but uh, yeah that, that's that's pretty much it I guess in a nutshell uh, 
hard to imagine then what you've done over all these generations from going into that uh, garage, putting that little bit of equipment back together. You, you could never have imagined what your life was going to have in store for you after that. No, that's true, Daniel. And I've got to say I've been very lucky and I've been very lucky with the support of my wife and family as well. Um, all through, my wife also worked for McLaren's uh, after a while. So, so that was good. It was, it was a dovetail of things. But um, as I say, I've been incredibly lucky. But I was lucky also to be in an era of Formula One from the late 60s through 70s, 80s, 90s into 2000 when Formula One was burgeoning. It was a fun sport. There were all the big names you hear about now. Uh, racing into Senna, Prost, and all those sorts of people, uh, James Hunt, Fittipaldi. And luckily enough, we were, we were part of all of them in one way or another. So, yeah, I think we were able to grow, or I was able to continue in the sport as it grew around me, and I was able to hang on to his coattails and, and go with it, really. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming on. I'm Hamish Bennett here. Hey, mate, what was Bruce McLaren, McLaren like? Can you sort of delve into that for the listeners? Well, Hamish, yeah, it's um, funny you should say that. I, I had dinner with, um, with Amanda McLaren last night um, down here in Taupo. Um, Bruce, I, I didn't really get to know him. I, it was only three years that uh, I was in and out of the place when, when he was, uh, before he got killed in 1970. Um, and the first couple of nights I was there helping or during the day, he kept looking at my brother-in-law and eventually said, who's that bloke? And um, Griff, my brother-in-law, said, oh, well, it's, you know, it's my to-be brother-in-law. And, and I was called the nameless mate from then onwards by Bruce. Um, How's your nameless mate doing? And he was very, I mean, what I got to meet him and what I got to saw, see of him, he was, uh, he was great. I mean, he was as friendly as you couldn't believe it. And he was, um, it was an incredibly friendly place. And it was a, a place where there were no, there was no real hierarchy in the place. You know, Bruce was down there. Uh, doing stuff on cars. He was the driver, he was the owner, his name above the door and all that sort of thing. But he was a, a really lovely guy, an engineer and driver. Both of, you know, he succeeded absolutely in both disciplines, but he had ideas on the car and uh, he, he just forged that team forwards with the help of, I've got to say, uh, probably a dozen, 15, 20, and then it became more primarily Kiwis working for him. I'm just trying to, trying to visualise you writing a CV of all the things you did with McLaren, it would be pages and pages. Right? You, you, you added in a lot of ways, a variety of ways, right, Bob? That, that would be fair to say? I, yeah, I, I, I suppose I, I bent with the wind as it was going. When things needed doing, um, I was there to do it. I mean, I, I quickly learned that I was going to be better off not working on cars. So um, then I started... I, I don't know where to start, Daniel. I was doing uh, tyre fitting and driving the trucks and, and all sorts of things. And, and then Ron Dennis came along and the whole thing burgeoned again. I mean, I could, you know, you leap from era to era. Um, but it was fortunate, as I said before, that I was there and just picking up things to do and um, ended up doing, really enjoying it. I mean, it's as simple as that. I, there wasn't, you know, the old story about um, I've had a job and I've never worked a day in my life. Well, I can honestly say... I never worked a day in my life at that place. It was a hobby that I was getting extremely well paid for. Simple as that. Did you put your hand up to do anything? You wanted to make yourself indisposable. Well, in many ways, yeah. I wanted to stay there. So if something needed doing, um, it, it, it became done. Um, when, the, when Formula One started burgeoning in the late 
70s. Well, I was working Formula 3 and Formula 2 as well for Ron Dennis at the time because I needed something else to pay the wages. Um, and I also got, oh, sorry, not pay the wages, pay enough wages for me to live with my wife. Um, and clearly motor racing was not paying a lot at that time. In fact, it was hardly paying anything. So I got a job with uh, an airline and uh, selling cars at the same time to enable me to go racing at weekends. Um, so, you know, you were having to do an awful lot of things in those days. There was no pension plans. There were no, no um, great uh, employment plans or, or whatever then. You had to dance on your feet. And it wasn't racing every weekend. There were very few races during the year, in fact. So doing Formula 2 and Formula 3, either tire fitting or changing or driving the trucks or working on the cars or being a gopher or whatever was what you had to do. But by doing that, you kind of learned the trade. And you kind of learned in motor racing the people. And once you understand the people and once you understand that there are a lot of people uh, there who are growing up with you and becoming team owners, like Ron Dennis. I mean, he was a friend who became the biggest boss in motorsport in, in a way. And, you know, it just you, you kind of grew with them. I don't know how to explain it. As I said, I'll go back. I was lucky enough to grow with the sport that was growing. And once Bernie Eccleston got involved, I mean, you know, it's like a rocket ship taking off straight away. Yeah, I, I, that's, and that's my next question. You took, you've described it burgeoning, the sport's burgeoning. When did it go boom? When did it go boom? I guess um, 72, 3, 4, that's when it really started picking up, I think. Um, and then in the... 75, 76, when Bernie really started flexing his muscles and all the entrepreneur team owners came in, the likes of Frank Williams, Ken Tyrrell, all those sorts of people suddenly realized there was a fortune to be made here. Because don't forget, all those guys started off without a fortune. I mean, motor racing in America, you have a fortune, you go motor racing. Most of the teams in England at the time that turned into Formula One teams, Frank Williams is, a, is a, an ideal uh, example. They had no money. They just went racing and they did what they could. They went bankrupt five times before they became successful. And they, but they grew with the sport, as did, um, well, as did Ron Dennis in many ways. I mean, he was just a Formula Three team owner, got into Formula One, and it grew with him. So late seventies through the eighties, uh, and into the mid to late nineties, that's when it really started taking off. Then there was a bit of a you know, it stayed the same for a while as Bernie made all his money out of it. And now it seems to be taking off again in in, um, in the eyes of the public, in popularity. Yeah, we'd really like to get your thoughts on the current state of the sport. But the sport goes boom. Incredible sort of right, incredible list of drivers back to back to back for years and years and years. What, what was the best era, you think? And it might even be just a couple of years rather than a 10-year period. We're, when did you think the sport was at its best for excitement, for personalities, for controversies, all those things fans love? All through the, um, the 70s, I've got to say, mainly. Um, but, but there again, Daniel, people say, when is the best era in, in Formula One? Well, I don't know what the Fangio era was like. I wasn't there. I don't yeah. really know what the era is like now, although I hear quite a lot from the guys there. Um, and you only know the era that you're in, and you think that's the best era. I honestly don't think it's the best era now at all for the people no. that are working, working there. But during the 70s, I mean, the drivers, we used to go out with them in the evening, like James and, and people like that. We used to do stuff with them. All the teams were together in the paddock. If you needed something, you just next, walked next door to Ferrari and said, excuse me, have you got a one-way flat valve we need here? Oh, yeah, we got one of those in an Italian accent. Um, and so it was, that was the era, really, that it was all 
just getting going. We were racing in exciting places around the world. Um, it was busy. There was money to be made. There were big sponsors coming in, the likes of Marlboro and people like that. So, yeah, I, I, that was definitely the best era from my point of view anyway. I should say from 1970, um, 71, 72, through 76, 77, that was good. J James Hunt champion in 76 with us. And then when we started to get into the uh, Senna-Prost era, fantastic, because that was what was happening on track in the, in the late 80s. Uh, when McLaren, we won 15 races out of 16 races, races in a year. I mean, so from a team point of view, McLaren point of view, it was, um, it was that was a fantastic era, I've got to say. Wow. Just imagine being alongside some of those legends during the prime of their career. Simply incredible. I'm in complete awe, Bob. That is just awesome. And I'm, it's a, just fascinating hearing about your career working in motorsport. Now, the last legend we had on for the month of July was former Black Cap Jeff Allett. We got him on to discuss playing cricket at the Commonwealth Games, but Daniel was also interested in discussing his world record, which is still standing today. I, I could spend 101 minutes talking about your innings. What, what, well, do, you, what do you most please. remember about that, Duck? What, what, what do you most remember about it? Probably after the first sort of battering I got from Alan Donald and um, Callis and Klusner or whoever it was, um, it was actually became quite fun. Uh, Harry was down the other end uh, milking all the strike as he does and um, yeah. <laughs> didn't, it sent me back about five times when I could have had easy singles, which my, my kids now say, well, why the hell didn't you take it? Probably a fair, probably a fair point. But um, no, at the time, I think it was my only world record or my only record um, of any note. So, uh, so whether it was good or bad, I knew I was going to be in the history books for a while. Were you playing for a naught at the end? Uh, I played for. Uh, yeah, I must admit, I, we knew we were getting close. <laughs> you the umpires did. sort of had a bit of a word. <laughs> the umpires had a word and said, "You're only five minutes away." At that stage, it's uh, you know we, we were very much locking down for the moment. Uh, and I think it was. I think it was the only time I got to raise my bat uh, for any cricket, including club cricket, which was quite a special moment when you get naught and raise your bat on either back. Oh, and how good does this sound? Jeff Ellett caught Pollock bold callous. Naught. 77 yeah. balls phase, 101 minutes. Just magnificent. Now, did did you walk the, into I, the I change room, the... GA? Did you walk into the change room and go, that's how you do it, boys? Yeah. Bloody openers well, just the... giving your wickets away. Well, there was an element of that actually, but the worst part was the, um, the the official scorer came down, and they presented me two scorecards. One was Daryl Cullinan, I think he got two hundred and eighty, and and it had a whole lot of um, had a whole lot of lines all over his page. And then she presented me mine, and there was of course no wink on the page whatsoever. So um, so that exists somewhere still. Someone's got it, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty special moment that the boys enjoyed. Yeah, Cullinan did enjoy playing us, didn't he? Uh, less so Warney. Well, that was that was one rec record, uh, Jeff. But the other one is ODI record. Well, you were twenty seventh in the world, twenty seventh fastest to fifty wickets, um, all and, time and, of as all it time. currently stands, and the twenty fifth um, in the world best career strike rate. Um, so, or you could just say he was the best bowler of the nineteen ninety nine World Cup, and he'll feel better, won't you, Jeff? So that's a much nicer way of putting it, isn't it? Look, look. To be honest, guys, I know I had very limited ability, so. Um, so anything, and I, and I think, you know, obviously with Shane Moore passing, it was a sad moment, but 
to actually share the record with him when he went past me in the final. Um, or sorry, equaled me in the final. Uh, yeah. It was actually a moment I got up and celebrated because I actually thought, you know, this is no one's going to remember who Jeff Allen is, but if Shane Warne's beside it, then um, that's going to be fantastic. So to this it day, is... you know, I'm more proud about Shane was on there than, uh, than probably myself. Yeah, it oh, certainly has been a sad time seeing him pass at such an early age. But uh, before we get on to the Commonwealth Games, I want to ask you one question about that uh, 99 World Cup because I watched that religiously and um, the ball was swinging miles in that tournament. There was, I think there, it was tipped to be 100 wides uh, from the bookies and I think there was something like 400 wides in the tournament. Wasn't it May, oh, June? It was quite early in the English season. Yeah, what was the, yeah, what was the difference? I mean, that would have helped you, but wouldn't it, the swing? Thanks, thanks, Grant. That's really good of you, mate. I needed all the help I could get. Uh, so, um, <laughs> well, way to cut a man down, eh? Way to cut a man yeah, down, yeah. Grant. It's always great. Well, again, that's why I was really pleased Shane Warne ended up sort of, um, you know, equaling the record because as a spin bowler, I could then always say, well, no, it wasn't Green Seamus. It was actually really dry, you know, <laughs> the turned miles. So, uh, no, it was, I've got to confess, um, the Duke, Duke's ball had very, uh, very big seams. They felt small in your hand. And at that time of year, uh, on green on green wickets, the ball was going miles. So, the the advantage I had is that I typically didn't swing it a long way. The guys that did swing it were swinging it out of control, um, and that's where all the wides come from. Um, ground that you mentioned. So, I was lucky that I didn't have enough talent that my little bit of swing actually ended up being just the right amount. Um, so it was, uh, it was a good thing, good timing. You know what? That's probably a record that you probably really want to hold on to for the rest of your life, but you also kind of hope at the same time that someone else might take that mantle off you. That's how I see it anyway, but man, imagine having a world record like that. I don't think I would complain having a world record, and that was a great story there from Jeff. Lastly, we have to go there. July was a tough month for New Zealand rugby fans after the All Blacks lost their Test Series to Ireland. People were not happy, seriously, not happy. Some of them on the show were so tense and angry. We were getting messages about people complaining about the music we were playing. They were really uptight. It was quite a weird time to see New Zealand rugby fans on edge. As expected, people were not happy, and here is some of the highlights from these irate fans. Well, Daniel, you've never been backwards with coming forwards. And I've got an opinion, and I'd love your take on it. Um, I'd like to take a pot shot at the media. Um, I've been... Uh, Smithy's session that he has on... The, he has a couple of guys, journos come on, and they have their opinions. And I've been reading the papers, and I've been taking massive broadsides at Ian Foster and his team. And, mm-hmm. and I agree with what they've been saying. But that session yesterday, when they actually had Ian Foster and asking questions was so meek and mild, and I was very disappointed that they weren't really asking the hard questions. So everyone's really brave when they've got their own byline, and they can hide behind a paper, or they can hide behind um, talking to you guys. But when it actually came time to talk to Ian Foster and give him some pretty tough questions that they should have asked, they failed. And I'm just curious... So, th- so they were too nice. Might be on that. They, they were too nice and so were- Mikey... I think overall, the sentiment you are projecting to me is one I agree with. I think it is much easier um, from the comfort of your home, if you're writing an opinion piece, to fire broad shots. It's much more difficult to look Grant Elliott in the eye and say your Wellington Firebirds were rubbish. Um, I, I might say it on air, but, but, but I think that's, I think that's human nature. That. 
You yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did used to do that. But, 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 Mikey, can I take you back? Actually, I must admit that before the game, I was a little bit worried where the All Blacks' heads were. Um, I was in an event where a senior All Black um, figure in the management team spoke, and I, I thought it was going to be one of those pretty standard X's and O's. This is how the game's going to go, so on and so forth. Rather, my attention was grabbed by the fact that this person had multiple unsolicited cracks at the media, the appalling New Zealand media. Um, uh, I might be paraphrasing there, but that, that certainly stuck out to me. And I did wonder where the heads were at. Such a primitive way to look at things, you know, to, to, to lump all the media in one go. Um, but I think, it, I, 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 Mikey, I don't think New Zealand media or any media should be above reproach. And in fairness, I think media gets judged publicly a, a, a lot more than most industries. So you think the, the line of questioning actually was on the, the softer side yesterday, that it wasn't appalling. Look, I, I've, I've listened to a couple of Ian Smith's interviews with people, and he he's very respectful, but he asks hard questions. And I think yes. that's, that's like, we're not like the sun. We're not like English media, which are, which are horrible. I lived over there for a number of years, and they, they are terrible. Yes. Um, mm. and, and, and as New Zealanders, we're, we're not like that. But at the same time, you can be respectful, but ask very hard questions. And I don't think they did that. And that's, I guess that's my pot shot, really, is, is that that I've read a ton of stuff in the papers, and they really have gone to town on the All Blacks, and rightfully yeah. so, but front up if you're there in front of the man. You know, don't don't, yeah. don't be all... Yeah, I, I just thought that was disappointing. Hey, Mikey, happy birthday yep. to you, mate. Thanks for kicking us off. Have a yep. great Saturday. Thanks, Mikey. It was uh, Mikey Christchurch. Let's go further south. Our good mate, Dean. Happy birthday to you, Dean. Tell me birthday, mate. I had to turn the radio off yesterday when I heard Forster speak. I couldn't believe it. That is the worst, whatever it was, that he was dribbling out. And the one word that really resonated with me, and it'll resonate with you lads too, is he said he will be held accountable. Does he even know the meaning of that word? Oh, that would have been the first question I would have asked if I was a journalist there. Yeah, can you spell the word? Do you actually know what it means? Because his accountability is finished. He shouldn't be there. But you he wanted accountability know. yesterday. There still might be accountability wanted, in three, four, five days, three weeks, three months, nine months, three years. Wanted, what, wanted, what did you need wanted, to hear, Dean? What did you need to hear from Ian Foster to make him accountable? I needed to hear him say, you know what? I absolutely love the opportunity to have the best job in New Zealand, but I realised that it's just, it's a bridge too far for me. Just like Wayne... You wanted him to resign. And walk away. Is what Absolutely. you're saying, Dave. Anyone, anyone, anyone with any credibility or accountability for the performance of the... He's, he's, the, he's the captain of the ship. And it's terrible. He just needed to do what Wayne Smith's done and keep his head held high and say, look, man up and say, look, I'm just... Unfortunately, I don't believe I'm the man for the job. Because we all know he's not. That, that interview was horrible. There was nothing about, the, even the announcement of the players, the way he did that, son, this one's in, this one's not. It was like, it was the worst interview. You could tell he was struggling okay. to even get the words out. Hey, Dean, fair to say if they don't win the World Cup, your opinion of him won't change. So he's got to go win a World Cup now? Oh, I reckon he's the worst New Zealander we've ever had. What? He's not man enough. Oh. The worst New Zealander? Come on, Dean, my man. I, no, no, I really no, enjoy speaking to you, Dean. The worst New Zealander? Has he committed heinous, violent acts of crime? Has he stolen no, no, millions no, no, and millions no. of dollars from some 
So some poor souls no, no, out no. there. Come on, Dane. The no, worst no, no. New Zealander. I'll give you a chance yep. to be man enough to retract that statement. No, not at all. I think, in the fact that he won't man up and walk away from the best job in New Zealand, it's bums on seats. This is going to affect bums on seats. I'm not going. I never thought Dane, I'd we'll, say, uh, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on this point, but we'll chat again in the future, mate. Yikes. We had to have our finger seriously hovering over the dump button, which is the button we can push if anyone swears on the radio so it doesn't go to ear. Luckily, I didn't have to push it. I'm sure some people probably did, but it was quite nervy times getting some of these angry fans on the show, and I bet some of those pitchforks <laughs> for some of the people in the All Blacks are even sharper now. Hate to say <sighs> But anyways, that is all for now on the Best of the Sesh podcast for the month of July. Thanks for listening in, and don't forget to rate and subscribe to the Saturday Session wherever you get your podcasts from. This is the Saturday Session with Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott.